0: And for me, at the end of the day, money is a tool. And with a tool, you can do great things or you can do bad things, provided the hand is in control of the tool, not the other way around. And the problem is that finance, and you can discuss maybe the same with some of the technological progress, sometimes the tool is taking control of the hand.
1: Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco Beccali. Welcome back to another edition from Crisis to Creation here on Mentri TV. I'm Patricia Falco Beccali, your host. And before taking you to where we're going to be today, let me say thank you to you, to all of my followers that have subscribed to the channels, to all of your sharing, caring, and also liking. And most importantly, your comments are fabulous. You're so proactive. Thanks for all of your suggestions. I take them in and I hope I can turn them around and really bring you what is interesting to you. Okay, today's subject. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the saying money is at the root of all evil? It comes from the writing of Apostle Paul, and I wonder about it. I mean, look at, for example, the crisis 2007 and 8. You could be forgiven thinking that money and finance in general is at the root of all evil because that particular crisis really put a lot of people into destitute and poverty. And most importantly, it really crushed trust across the globe into the institutions and perhaps money itself. But my question is, is it really about the money, the finance, or is it really what we do with it, how we utilize it for the good, Or for the bad. And this is why I came across a fantastic book, Can Finance Save the World? I think a very provocative kind of headline for a book by Bertrand Badré. He's the former CFO of the World Bank. He's the founder and CEO of Blue Orange Capital. And he joins us on the show here on Mentory TV to answer the question. Bertrand, thank you so much for being with us here on Mentory TV.
0: Very happy to be with you, Patricia.
1: Let me, before we get into the ins and outs and the depth of our conversation, Bertrand, first of all, give also a little bit more background on you. I mean, you're only about two years older than me, which I couldn't believe for all the things you have done in your career. Fabulous, you know, being involved with the UN and the World Bank, I already mentioned before, Soggen, Credit Agricole, always with the high and mighty and really the power players in this world. Now you're a successful entrepreneur and we'll talk about blue-orange capital later on as well. So you really have done things. And you and I, we have met a few years ago at the University of Oxford at the SAID uh, Business School there when I was a master of ceremony of one of the fantastic events you held together with Bruno Roche when it comes to the economics of mutuality. And it was such a joy to hold this and to meet you as well. And now we're going to start talking about the most important question first. You know, I came across uh, the following line. This book is a cry from the heart, a uh, wake-up call. Bertrand, what made you really come to the point where you thought, I need to write a book called Can Finance Save the World?
0: Well, I, I, as you said, I've spent uh, a huge part of my professional life in finance. Uh, in, in the in the very same book, I used to call myself the Forrest Gump of finance, in the sense that I was... Uh, in the Minister of Finance in France when we created the Euro. I had the junior role, but I was there. So I, like Forrest Gump, I was there. Uh, I was in London uh, at the time of the new economy bubble. I was in New York when this bubble burst and the World Trade Center collapsed. I was then an advisor to President Chirac when we uh, really worked on a new financing mechanism for development, in particular, what is very well known now as Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. So I was there when we started to discuss how do we put money into that 20 years ago. And then I was a group chief financial officer of two large banks through the the financial crisis between 2007-2013. So I've seen the world collapse. I've seen the world disappear under my feet. And... uh, And then I moved to the World Bank as, as managing director and that's where I took a different perspective. I went back to the US uh, at the moment where people started to think, okay, what comes next? And uh, joining the World Bank, I also joined the G7, the G20, all this kind of global apparatus that seems very mysterious to, to a number of people. But So you, you are inside and you see what's going on there. And, and that's uh, where I started to, to say, okay, we had this crisis. In today's world, how how do you rebuild, or not, actually? And uh, on the positive side, uh, I was involved in the preparation of the big uh, events of 2015. I mean, the COP21 in Paris on climate and and the New York uh, UN Summit on the Sustainable Development Goals, which was very exciting. But I was also puzzled by the fact that what was not really taken into account was how to get there. So everybody wants to eradicate poverty. Everybody wants, I mean, Everybody's okay if it doesn't cost too much to limit the the climate change. Everybody's okay to have a good governance, access to water, blah, blah, blah. But how do you finance that? How do you pay for that? How do you transform the system to get there? And so when I left the World Bank, I took, this is the beauty of the American system, I took a one-year pause in a think tank, the Peterson Institute in Washington. I was pushed by a number of friends to put my ideas down. And that's how uh, Can Finance Save the World came to life. What do we do after all these big decisions?
1: Yes, exactly. And we're going to go through them quite structured because you, uh, you know, in your book I had quite a few eye openers um, because of the way you describe what happened before the crisis and what happened after the crisis and what sort of shifts this particular crisis of two seven and eight really caused in the long run. But before we get there, um, you know, for everybody that is not really in finance, and a lot of our audience, Bertrand, is not necessarily coming from a finance background, so we must kind of try to avoid to really talk above um, people's head is this this question of, is money our friend or foe? Is it, you know, the master or is it the servant? Where does this love-hate relationship come from? Because one thing for sure, from Cabaret, we know money makes the world go round. We all need money. And in some extent, we all love money.
0: Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of the French uh, famous uh, comic guy, Coluche, used to say, there are two things where everybody has an idea, sex and money. And whether you have money or whether you don't have money, you have an idea on money. Yeah, and you, you still it do it. it, and you, you still do it, right? No, <laughs> yeah, but you, you, it's, it's a point where everybody on earth has a view on money, whether you like it or ignore it, etc. It's very interesting. And uh, I think common wisdom has it. I mean, as you say, money is a, is a poor master and a great servant. And that's, for me, the, the, the very basis. I, I, I'm quoting in my book, uh, saint Teresa of Avila, so the Spanish saint. Uh, we used to say, uh, money is a dung of evil, but an amazing manure. So, and for me, at the end of the day, money is a tool. And with a tool, you can do great things or you can do bad things, provided the hand is in control of the tool, not the other way around. And the problem is that finance, and you can discuss maybe the same with some of the technological progress, sometimes, the tool is taking control of the hand. You you, you are tempted to go further and further and further. And that's when things start to go bad. That's when the genius is let out of the bottle. And uh, it happens regularly in history that the genius takes control and that's really when things turned really ugly. It,
1: yes and absolutely and somehow if you see it with trading and algorithm trading sometimes they're the genies out of the bottle and <laughs> you know the traders can't really uh, follow the, the the actual trades anymore because the computer took over and this what really makes me mention the subtitle of your book Bertrand which is regaining power over money to serve the common good. When did we really lose? What was the moment where you think we lost you know the power over money or the control if to tame it, you know, that word power?
0: Well, it's been, it happens sometimes in history. I mean, you can argue that in 1929, we had also the same issue with Wall Street in the US. And, and to a certain extent, the early 2000s were, were also similar to that. So for me, it's uh, dating back to what started in the 1970s. So if you take a, a little bit of perspective there, after the Second World War, so after the complete disaster of the 1930s and the war, We rebuilt a system which was kind of organized uh, with the IMF and the World Bank, the Bretton Woods uh, Accord, uh, with the UN, with the Marshall Plan, with the European Community, all these things were kind of organized. And on top of that, you had the dollar, on top of the dollar, you had gold. And that was kind of solid. And of course, it was shaken. As we know, because of globalization, the reopening of borders, uh, the, Viet- the Vietnam War, a lot of dollars circulating all over the world, which led to uh, two big decisions in the early 70s. first one by uh, Richard Nixon, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary this year, which was to suspend the convertibility of dollar into gold. So suddenly we are moving from a world where things were organized around gold to a world where everything is organized around the market. If I ask you, what is a dollar worth today? You will tell me, oh, a dollar is worth X euro. Okay, and what is a euro? Well, it's worth Y dollar. And so it's fluctuating. And that's mentally has taken over our minds. So we are are in agreement that market is right. That started this way. (laughs) And the second signal, which was important, was a few weeks earlier with a famous article of Milton Friedman in the New York Times in September, 1970. At that time, General Motors was the largest company in the U.S., was considering to open its board to uh, people representing the public interest. I mean, probably we would say civil society or stakeholders today. At that time, we said public interest. And Milton Friedman said vehemently that no way, you don't do that. The purpose of business is to increase its profits, nothing else. And so when you add the combination of market-based and profit-driven, I mean, you you instillate these principles in your accounting standards, in your governance issues, in your fiduciary duties, in the compensation policy, in the rating approach, and so on and so forth. And, and to a certain extent, the the, the crisis of 2007, 2008, it, it, I wouldn't say it's an automatic result of all that. Nothing is ever automatic, but it's one of the reasons why we we, we come to that crisis and where the, the genius out of the bottle destroys the bottle. Yeah, I mean, You had the innovation out of control. You created, I mean, you created financial products which whose object was just to serve financial products. I mean, it was kind of self-referring. Uh, a CDO squares and a CDO cubes and whatever. I mean, I mean what the, what's the connection with the common good, to, to, to use my subtitle? You had a crisis of uh, not only of innovation. You had a crisis of regulation and supervision, and it was not an accident. Uh, again, it was intrinsic to to, to the modern. I mean, Margaret Thatcher used to say we need a light touch regulation, meaning the market can self regulate. That was that was really the vision: the market can self regulate. And I mean, we've seen how it self regulated. I mean, it didn't work. Okay. And the last crisis for me was this crisis of globalization itself. On the one hand. Uh, I would say the the, the financial globalization went very fast. Uh, Technological globalization went very fast. Legal globalization went a little slower. And ethical globalization went very slow. And so when you have this tension between things going fast and things going slow, at some times they break up.
1: Well, I don't know whether the ethical globalization is actually happening at all, to be honest with you, just between you and I, because I think there's a lot of scope there. But let's come back. I mean, I kind of uh, summarize what you were saying, what happened in the 70, uh, 70s, the dollar was debased because we didn't have that reference of gold anymore. So we had, as you call it, the genie out of the bottle. It's a deregulation and setting the market free as if it was, you know, a self entity all of a sudden and being able to care about itself. But But all it created was a huge amount of debt, which we now actually call our economy across the globe. But when we look at the actual productivity of an economy and the debt ratio, the the picture changes, starts to change very, very quickly. quickly. And the self-regulation is where you then start seeing the the question mark.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So, uh, again... uh, I mean, these changes have worked pretty well at the beginning. So we should not just ignore and say we move from from uh, light to darkness and then again to light and then to darkness. I mean, there are cycles. I mean, you had the, the cycles of 1945 to the mid-70s. I mean, the Trente glorieuses in France, uh, which was a great period of catch-up for Europe and Japan vis-à-vis the US. And then you had these turbulences of the 1970s. And then uh, the Washington Consensus, actually, and, and everything which went with it, the neoliberal model, whatever you call it, I mean, as brought success. I mean, it has driven out of poverty a huge part of the world. It has opened borders. It has it has driven a lot of technolog- technological changes, etc. So not everything is bad. The problem is that when you go too far. Yes. When you go really too far and too fast into these limits. And that's what we reached. In particular, one of the subproducts of these changes was debt leverage was good because leverage was a nice way to increase your profit. That's what I've learned in business school. I remember when I I learned the the leverage effect, I was told, oh my God, it's so easy to make money. You leverage. Yeah, that's great. And uh, we done that. I mean, and again, today it's very difficult to imagine. I read the figure yesterday that the the global debt is close to 400% of the global GDP.
1: That's the point. This is why I'm saying. I mean, you have valuation and you have value. Yeah. And, you know, and the value at that point for me is, you know, when you start using your debt to repay your debt, something is fundamentally wrong. I mean, I use my income to reduce my debt, really. And this is how it should be on a micro level, on a macro level. Or am, am I just being too naive?
0: No, no, you, I don't think you, you, you're too naive. These are, these are questions we, which are, are, are worth discussing today. These are difficult questions. I mean, if you see economies today... Uh, f- for me, what, whatever we discuss around this, these goals of being more sustainable, more resilient, more inclusive, mm-hmm. there, is, there are questions which are addressed to finance and money, whatever happens. And uh, first is, uh, what does it mean to add a negative interest rate? I mean, we, we are getting used to that, but it's very difficult to explain to your kids. Okay, yes. give, me, uh, yes. give me $1 and uh, tomorrow I give you $0.9 $0. $0 and you should be very happy with that. Exactly,
1: okay. exactly. You give me money and you pay me for being able exactly. to give me money.
0: Exactly, So <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to explain. How do you want to, to to give a sense that saving makes sense, to project yourself in the long term? If the long term has the same value as the short term, what's the point? And so on. So, so you have all this relationship, which is difficult. And the other one is, is a relationship with money itself, where uh, depending on the country, it's particularly true in France, uh, uh, is central bank money money free i mean can we just print money and it, it, yeah it's it's no, it's, it's a complex question because when when you when you are in in the middle of this conversation you understand it. it's not that easy but for a number of people which are not versed in economics it's very difficult so a year ago you told me there was no money and suddenly you can put in the us 1.9 trillion dollars that's a lot of money. Which is, Whatever. by the way,
1: the double they put in 2007-2008. Uh, it's double that, I think. It was about Yeah, but
0: it's more than that because if you had the first Trump plan plus the second Trump plan plus the first Biden plan, you had $4 trillion. Amazing. It's five times. Wow. The Obama plan was $800 million, billion. So yeah. it's five times more in 10 years. So I, I don't know what will be the plan in 10 years if we have another crisis like this. Will we, we have 20 trillion dollars? I, I don't know. You know, how,
1: how many zeros, exactly, how many zeros but, but the point
0: is, is that at, at what point do you start doubting the, the currency?
1: And that's and the that's, point. Again, I'm,
0: you have all these discussions around the cryptocurrencies, etc. Yeah. It's part of this conversation. What is money worth today? So we know it's no longer worth uh, 30. I mean, uh, an ounce of gold was worth 35 dollars. That was pretty reassuring. Now, I don't know. So Whatever happens, I mean, the, the, the world of finance and money is questioned. How do you make your model work in a, in a world where rates are at zero, if not negative? How does it work? Is it exactly. the same as before? So we continue to pretend it's more or less the same as before, but we know that it's something is wrong.
1: Something something is wrong. And let me just interject there. And if you know something is wrong, that means that trust and we, I mentioned it before, trust is being crushed. And what I thought was very interesting, and it was actually an eye opening for uh, eye opener for me uh, in that sense, was this shift. Post uh, 2008, seven and eight crisis when it comes to the trust in banks and what people did. And in chapter three about institutional investors, you write another major consequence of the crisis is the transformation of an economy dominated by banks into a world where institutional investors reign pension funds, uh, insurers, etc. Soon they manage close to $100 trillion US dollars and are the repository of our trust. They are managing our money. Yep. So does that really mean that the crisis made this big shift in the long term, that banks now is something that uh, a bit of an iffy institution, I can't really have my, my hands on it enough. But if I give it to institutional investors, I am more in control of the money because I'm more in control in what I invest in.
0: That, that's probably true, actually. The, the banks have been crushed by, by the previous crisis. One of the answers of the system was to really increase the requirement from banks, more capital, more liquidity buffers, etc. And so today for a bank to increase its balance sheet it's very expensive. So they try to set up, structure, etc., and then give the baby to somebody else. That's really, uh, And then somebody else is uh, institutional investors. Uh, so the insurers and the pension fund, the sovereign wealth fund, the family offices, etc. Uh, and uh, good news, I mean, there are more and more like this, in particular because the markets have been bigger, so you have more wealthy buckets and etc. Uh, but ultimately, for me, it's, it's 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 extremely interesting because if these guys uh, are capable of understanding what are the challenges, they can influence the market in, in a way more effective way than other players. And that's what is visible again with a touch of soul because it's uh, not, not everybody is so sincere about this but let me so if all the investors say okay climate is a very big deal and we want now everybody to take control that sends a very strong signal in the system I've been CFO I've been on roadshow many years so when, when these people ask you questions you pay attention they are your shareholders they are the people providing you with debt and finance etc so I think they have a very important role and that's well, I think to a certain extent, the market actually is more important than ever. Not the market in the sense that it's an absolute judge of every every value, but the market as, a, as, a, as an influence on the market economy. And the market means the investor. Yes. And really. the investor can influence the companies, but the consumers. Uh, that's also important. If, if consumers say, I, I don't want to buy uh, shoes that are being produced by people in, in, uh, in Xinjiang in China, I mean... Yeah. People will make decisions. decision. That I continue to produce my shoes there? And, of course, the, the, the staff, the people working in companies. I had this conversation with Paul Polman, the former CEO of Unilever, and I told you, why did you uh, change the direction, the course of Unilever? And you say, first, it was my conviction. Mm-hmm. But second, we could not attract any talent. And the market is also the people. If, if you can't attract talent, uh, you have a problem. So if, you, if people don't want to go to a company like uh, Unilever because they believe that Unilever is producing bad, bad food or, 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 or soaps that go pollute the oceans, etc., they will not go there. If you convince them that you stop doing that and you go in another the direction, then you attract the brightest people. So I think the pressure from the market in all its facets is extremely important.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is why ESG and what happened in 2015 is so important. And in that sense, you know, the climate crisis really starting to be felt on every level. Uh, If you have the snowstorms or the inundations with water or the wildfires, people are starting to feel it. And they are starting to make uh, active choices about how they want to lead their lives including investments. And this is where investments is nothing else but (laughs) using the tool of money to put it here rather than there. And this is where you were just saying markets are also people. I think, you know, markets are people. We all are people. Any company is a bunch of people making something happen together. The same for the market.
0: But you have to to convince people of that because I've been traveling in many, many countries. I've been discussing with a lot of people. And for the vast majority of people, they believe that the big guys are somewhere else. You know, it's, not, it's, it's BlackRock's money, not my money, for instance. Or it's CalPERS money, not my money. Or it's whatever. I mean, you, you take all the names. And it's very difficult to convince people. No, it's not their money. They manage your money. It's not they and us. It's we together. They, they need you as much as we need them. And so we, we have to make sure. Uh, I remember I, I received af- after the book, I received a, a, a message on LinkedIn from a Canadian lady say, well, I, I read your book and I went to my bank and I say, I want to invest in this type of products. And they say, no, we can't offer you that, but you should do this and this. And I was pissed off because they'd offer me what I wanted. I say, yeah, it's, it's great. You have to tell them. And the more people come to the bank and say, I want this type of products, then people will adjust.
1: Absolutely. And that's and why you know, I
0: think we, we, we see this shift today. Yeah. And again, we should not fool ourselves. It's, uh, I think ESG is an important momentum, uh, environmental, social and governance focus. Uh, but first of all, it's, it's prone to washing, let's be honest, you, 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 because most of the time ESG is self-declaratory. You say, I am ESG you have no real certification you have nobody telling it's great or not great or so you start to have some some rating but' it's, it's the very beginning and and second ESG is is really focused on best efforts so I, I commit to do my best to take care of environment social and governance issue but once you say that I mean, you don't really know whether your efforts are really the best and whether they produce any outcome so this is the beginning so I'm not I'm not saying that it's it's not good. It's probably a necessary step. But, but again, it's just a step. We it need to continue.
1: Absolutely. But I think it's a, the step in the right direction. And I remember um, watching an interview with Larry Fink, you know, the CEO of BlackRock, the biggest asset manager in the world. And he said, you know, our shift towards more and more ESG is because we are listening to our clients. And to be honest with you, we have clients you just described, uh, Bertrand, that come in and say, I would like to invest in that, that and that. And I certainly don't want to invest in a company that does this, this and the other, because I don't agree with it. And unless we listen to them. You know, it doesn't matter whether they have uh, trillions and trillions, they're managed, money is round. So it rolls away and it rolls away to something that is more agreeable. So I think it is a first step. And yes, if we need the climate to have the first, you know, the first step in the right direction, I'm all for it. And if we have leaders such as Larry Fink and other organizations following the client's uh, demand at the end of the day, uh, it's a good thing. But as a little bracket to your book, and I was thinking about okay, we do have shareholder, we have to, shareholders that put pressure on because you can do that. You can say, hey, unless you do this and that, and the other in the company, I will leave you as a shareholder. But what about shareholder, not activism but terrorism, and. Why do I say the strong word uh, shareholder terrorism? Because I look at what's happening with GameStop, uh, with Reddit. Um, after we've had a couple of weeks, you know, the David and Goliath situation where Joe Blogs, with all due respect, anybody that has a, you know, trading account on their mobile can get into the stock markets right now and do take on and does take on the hedge funds. That is, I don't know. I mean, there we have a market that not only is not regulated, But self-regulation becomes even harder because all of a sudden you have players in the market speculating rather than investing with a certain fundamental understanding of what they're actually doing and potentially causing. How do you see that?
0: Well, I think speculation is intrinsic to the market and and the reality that you need speculators to have the market work because... if you buy, you have to have somebody who sells, and if you sell, you have to have somebody who buy. So you need to have somebody who thinks the opposite way of you every time. And so uh, to a certain extent, the hedge fund are also speculators, the ways the individual individually speculating. So I, I think you have to make sure that it's not a jungle, and it's very difficult because, uh, as we said, I mean, technology is going very, very, very fast. Um, there is a lot of emotions on top of that. As you said, David against Goliath or Robin Hood, or whatever you call them, I mean, you have a nice image, you a bad image. So I think, again, this is part of... Uh, how can we use markets to, to, to go in the right direction or let them go in the wrong direction? Uh, I think, again, they, coming back to Santerra, this is a, a, a dung of evil, an amazing manual. It really depends on the way you control and channel it. And that's, for me, important. Coming back to in, in investors, uh, either we let them do whatever they want Oh, we, we gain control. This is my money. I want my money to be used this way. Uh, it's easier said than done, including for, 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 for BlackRock, actually. And, uh, and you've seen the challenges that Larry is facing. I, I, I believe I've known him for many, many years when I was at Lazard, uh, BlackRock as a client in New York. So we discussed at that time. And I was very impressed by his vision. So I think he's genuine and, and really. But uh, look at the tensions against the BlackRock itself. I mean, people around the world say, I mean, what's the difference between what he says and what you do? So I think it's very important You come, you, you mentioned earlier valuation and values. I think it's important to, to, that values and valuation will go hand in hand in this, in this century, I believe. You cannot, uh, I think integrity is gonna be a, a big value if you do what you say and say what you do. And, uh, and in today's world, it's gonna be more and more difficult to have a, a gap between the two.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree, the only thing is the question of values. You see, and there we have the question of globalization. As we do have an interdependent and globalized world, we were always thinking, okay, we just take the upside of it. But there's a lot of downsides. So all of a sudden we find ourselves, So yeah, we want to grow this way. But you have, for example, China having a certain conviction of how they want to grow, which does not necessarily agree in certain aspects, be it human rights and whatever, with ours. But we all want to grow. But the how is very different. So the value and valuation and bringing both together is hard, isn't it? And that wraps up the first part of my conversation with Bertrand Badré about, can finance save the world? And if you do like our conversations here on Mentory TV, join for free, subscribe, hit the bell button so I can always keep you informed. And thank you so much for potentially sharing, liking, and leaving your comments below.